Volume 2, Chapter 12 of the Heidenmauer, or the Benedictines, a legend of the Rhine, by James Fedimore Cooper. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Joel Kendrick. The Heidenmauer, by James Fedimore Cooper, Volume 2, Chapter 12. Was gutter to search our hearts and reins, the best were sinners great. Christ's vicar only knows ne sin, in Allah thy's mortal state. Chatterton. When all were arrived, the pilgrims divided themselves along the path, some kneeling before one tabernacle and some at another. Ulrich and Lochchen, followed by the pallid Meta, prayed long at each succession. The other females imitated their example, though evidently with less zeal and earnestness. The Knight of Rhodes and Monsieur Latouche limited their observations to a few genuflections and much rapid crossing of themselves with the fingers, appearing to think their general professions of faith possessed a virtue that superseded the necessity of any extraordinary demonstrations of piety. Heinrich and the Smith were more particular in showing respect for the prescribed forms. The latter, who was secretly paid by his townsmen for what he did, feeling himself bound in honor to give them the worthy of their money, and the burgomaster, in addition to his looking for great temporal advantages from the whole affair, being influenced by paternal regard for Durkheim. As for Ilse, none was more exact than she, and we may add none more ostentatious. Hast bethought thee, Dietrich, to say an extra word in behalf of the general interests? demanded Heinrich, while he patiently awaited the removal of the other, from before the last tabernacle, in order to assume the post himself. Nay, worshipful burgomaster, brother pilgrim, good smith, nay, worshipful brother, and good pilgrim, there was no question of this duty to the understanding. Himmel, art such a hound, Dietrich, as to need a bribe to pray in thine own interest? Do that thou hast promised for the penance, and in the interest of the monks, and then bethink thee like an honest artisan of the town in which thou art a citizen." I never rise from my knees without counting a few beads on the score of Durkheim and others for favor on the family of Frey. I cry you mercy, honorable Heinrich and excellent brother pilgrim. The wish is reasonable, and it shall be performed. The smith then counted off his rosary, making place for the burgomaster as soon as he could conveniently get through with the duty. In the meantime, Arnoff had prayed devoutly with sincere mental abasement before each station. The pilgrims then arranged themselves in two lines, a form of approaching the convent of Eisenden that is still observed by thousands annually, the men placing themselves on the right of the path in single files and the females on its left in a similar order. Arnoff walking ahead and the whole proceeded. Then began the repetition of the short prayers aloud. Whoever has wandered much through this remarkable and wild country must have frequently met with parties of pilgrims marching in the manner described. Whoever has wandered much through this remarkable and wild country must have frequently met with parties of pilgrims marching in the matter described and uttering their aspirations in the pure air as they ascend to or descend from the altar of Our Lady of the Snow, on the Rigi or wend their way among rocky and giddy paths seeking or returning from some other shrine. We know of no display of human worship that is more touching or impressive than this. The temple is the most magnificent on the earth. The air is as limpid as mountain torrents, and a high region can bestow while sound is conveyed to the ear in its clearest and most distinct tones. Aided perhaps by the echoes of dells that are nearly unfathomable, or of impending masses that appear to prop the skies. Long before the party is seen, the ear announces its approach by the music of the prayers. For music it is in such a place, the notes alternating regularly between the deep bass of the male to the silvery softness of the female voice. Such was now the effect produced by the advance of our party from the Palatinate. 
Father Arnoff gave the lead, and the powerful lungs of Heinrich and the smith, though much restrained, uttered the words in tones impressively deep and audible. The response of the women was tremulous, soft, and soothing. In this manner did they proceed for a mile when they entered the street of the hamlet. An express had announced to the community of Einzenden the approach of the German penitents. By a singular perversion of the humble doctrines of the founder of the religion, far more importance was attached to the expiations and offerings of princes and of nobles of higher degree than to those which proceeded from sources that were believed to be meaner. All the dwellers of the hamlet, therefore, and most of the others that frequented the shrine, were abroad to witness this expected procession. The name of Emic was whispered from ear to ear, and many curious eyes sought the form of the powerful baron under the guise common to the whole party. By general consent, after much speculation, the popular opinion settled on the person of the smith as on the illustrious penitent, a distinction which Dietrich owed to the strength of his lungs, to some advantage in stature, and particularly to the zeal which, as a hireling, he thought it just to throw into his air and manner. Among the other traditions that serve to give a popular celebrity to the shrine of Our Lady of the Hermits is one which affirms that, on an occasion it is unnecessary to relate, the Son of God, in the form of a man, visited this favored shrine. He is said to have assuaged his thirst at the fountain which flows, with Swiss purity and profusion before the door of the building. And, as the clear element has been made to run through different metal tubes, it is a custom of the pilgrims, as they arrive, to drink a hasty swallow at each in order to obtain the virtue of a touch so revered. There was also a plate of silver that had marks which were said to have been left by the fingers of Jesus, and to these it was the practice to apply the hand. The former usage is still universal, though modern cupidity has robbed the temple of the latter evidence of the reputed visit, in consequence of the value of the metal which bore its memorial. Arnoff halted at the fountain, and slowly making its circuit, drank at each spout. He was followed by all of his companions, but he passed the silver plate and entered the building, praying aloud until his foot was on the threshold. Without stopping, he advanced and knelt on the cold stones before the shrine, fastening his eye the while on the carved image of Mary. The others imitated his movements, and in a few minutes all were kneeling before the far-famed chapel of the Divine Consecration. The ancient church of Einzinden, for the building has since been replaced by another still larger and more magnificent, had been raised on the spot where the cell of St. Maynard originally stood. The chapel reputed to have been consecrated by angels was in this reverend cell, and the whole stood in the center of the more modern edifice. It was small in comparison with the pile which held it, but of sufficient size to admit of an officiating priest, and to contain many rich offerings of the pious. The whole was encased in marble, blackened by time and the exhalations of lamps, while the front and part of the sides permitted a view of the interior through openings that were protected by gratings curiously and elaborately wrought. In the farther and dark extremity of this sacred chapel were the images of the mother and child. Their dresses, as is usual at all much-worshipped shrines, were loaded with precious stones and plates of gold. The face of each had a dark and bronzed color, resembling the complexion of the Far East but which probably is a usage connected with the association of the origin and destiny that are superhuman. The whole was illuminated by strong lights and lamps of silver gilt, and the effect to the mind indisposed to doubt was impressive and of a singularly mysterious influence. Such was the shrine of Our Lady of the Hermits at the time of our tale, and such it continues to be to this day, with some immaterial additions and changes that are more the results of time than of opinion. We have visited this resort of Catholic devotion in the elevated region of hill and frost. 
have strolled near the close of day among its numerous and decorated chapels, have seen the bare-kneed peasants of the Black Forest, the swarthy Hungarian, the glittery-eyed Piedmontese, and the fair-haired German, the Tyrolese, and the Swiss, arrive in groups wearied and foot-sore, have watched them drinking with holy satisfaction at the several spouts, and, having followed them to the front of the altar, have wondered at the statue-like immovability with which they have remained kneeling, without changing their gaze from that of the unearthly looking image that seemed to engross their souls. Curiosity led us to the spot alone, and at no moment of a pilgrimage in foreign lands that has now extended to years do we remember to have felt so completely served from all to which we were most accustomed as at that hour. The groups arrived in scores, and without pausing to exchange a greeting without thought of lodging or rest, each hurried to the shrine, where he seemed embodied with the stone of the pavement, as with riveted eye and abased mien, he murmured the first prayers of expiation before the image of Mary. But to return to the narrative... For the first hour after the arrival of the expected pilgrims of Durkheim, not a sign of recognition or of grace was manifested in the convent. The officials came and went as if none but the common character made their expiations, and the fixed eye and swarthy face of the image seemed to return each steady gaze with supernatural tranquility. At length Arnoff arose, and, as if his movements were watched, a bell rang in a distant aisle. A lateral door, which communicated with the conventual buildings, opened and the whole brotherhood issued through it into the body of the church. Arnoff immediately kneeled again, and, by a sign, commanded his companions to maintain their places. Though grievously wearied with their positions, the men complied, but neither of the females had yet stirred. The Benedictines of Einzenden entered the church in the order that had been already described in the processions of Limburg. The junior monks came first, and the dignitaries last. In that age, their abbot was commonly of a noble and ancient, and sometimes of a princely house. For in maintaining its influence, the church has rarely been known to overlook the agency of those opinions and prejudices that vulgarly exist among men. In every case, however, the prelate who presided over this favored community possessed in virtue of his office the latter temporal distinction, being created a mitred abbot and a prince of the empire on the day of his consecration. During the slow advance of the long line of monks that now drew near the shrine, there was a chant in the loft, and the deep organ accompanied the words on a low key. Even Albrecht and the abbe were much impressed, while Emic fairly trembled, like one who had unwittingly committed himself into the hands of his enemies. The head of the train swept round the little chapel and passed with measured steps before the pilgrims. The prior and the females only prayed the more devoutly, but neither the count nor the burgomaster could prevent their truant eyes from watching the movement. Dietrich, little schooled in his duties, fairly arose and stood repeating reverences to the whole fraternity as it passed. When the close drew near, Emic endeavored to catch a glance of the abbot's eyes, hoping to exchange one of those secret signs of courtesy with which the initiated in every class of life know how to express their sympathies. To his confusion, and slightly to his uneasiness, he saw the well-known countenance of Bonifacius at the side of the dignitary who presided over the Brotherhood of Einzenden. The glances of these ancient and seemingly irreconcilable rivals were such as might have been anticipated. That of Bonifacius was replete with religious pride and a resentment that was at least momentarily gratified, though it still retained glimmerings of conscious defeat while that of Emic was fierce, mortified, and alarmed all in a moment. But the train swept on, and it was not long ere the music announced the presence of the procession in the choir. 
And Arnoff again arose, and, followed by all the pilgrims, he drew near to listen to the Vespers. After the prayers, the usual hymn was sung. Himmel, Master Brother Pilgrim, whispered the smith to the Burgomaster. That should be a voice known to all of Durkheim. Oomph, ejaculated Heinrich, who sought the eye of Emich. These Benedictines sing much in the same strain, Herr Emich, whether it be in Limburg or here in the Church of Our Lady of the Hermits. By my fathers, Master Frey, but thou sayest true. To treat thee as a confidant, I little like this intimate correspondence between the abbots, and, least of all, to see the Reverend Bonifacius enthroned here, in this distant land, much as he was wont to be in our valley. I fear me, Burgomaster, that we have entered lightly on this penance. If you can say this, well-born Emic, what should be the reply of one that hath wife and child in addition to his own person in the risk? It would have been better to covet less of heaven, the least portion of which must naturally be better than the best of that to which we are accustomed on earth, and to be satisfied with the advantages we have. Do you note, noble Count, the friendly manner in which Bonifacius regards us from time to time? His favors do not escape me, Heinrich, but peace. We shall learn more after the Vespers are ended. Then came the soothing power of that remarkable voice. The singer had been presented to the convent of Eisenden by Bonifacius, to whom he was now useless, as a boon that was certain to give him great personal favor, and so it had proved. For in those communities that passed their lives in the exercise of the offices of the church, the different shades of excellence in the execution, or the greater external riches and decorations of their several shrines, often usurped the place of a nobler strife in zeal and self-denial. The ceremony now ended, and a brother approaching whispered Father Arnoff. The latter proceeded to the sacristy, attended by the pilgrims, for it was forbidden even to the trembling Meta to seek refreshment or rest until another important duty had been performed. The sacristy was empty, and they awaited still in silence while the music of the organ announced the retiring procession of the monks. After some delay, a door opened, and the abbot of Isenden, accompanied by Bonifacius, appeared. They were alone, with the exception of the treasurer of the abbey, and as the place was closed, the interview that now took place was no longer subject to the vulgar gaze. Thou art Emic, Count of Hartenburg Leinigen, said the prelate, distinguishing the noble, spite of his mean attire, by a single glance of an eye accustomed to scan its equals, a penitent at our shrine for wrongs done the church and for dishonor to God. I am Emic of Leinigen, holy abbot. Dost thou disclaim the obligation to be here? and a penitent, the words, for being here, bitterly added in a mental reservation. The abbot regarded him sternly, for he disliked the reluctance of his tongue. Taking Bonifacius apart, they consulted together for a few minutes. Then, returning to the group of pilgrims, he resumed, Thou art now in a land that listeneth to no heresies, Herr von Hartenberg, and it would be well to remember thy vow and thy object. Hast thou ought to say? Emic slowly undid his scrip, and sought his offerings among its scanty contents. This crucifix was obtained by a noble of my house when a crusader. It is of jasper, as thou seest, reverend abbot, and it is not otherwise wanting in valuable additions. The abbot bowed in the manner of one indifferent to the richness of the boon, signing to the treasurer to accept the gift. There was then a brief pause. This censer was a gift of a noble far less possessed than thee, said he who kept the treasures of the abbey with an emphasis that could not easily be mistaken. The zeal outstrippeth the limbs of a weary man, brother. Here is a diamond that hath been heirloom of my house a century. Twas an emperor's gift. It is well bestowed on Our Lady of the Hermits, though she can boast of far richer offerings from names less known than thine. Emig now hesitated, but only for an instant, and then laid down another gift. 
This vessel is suited to thy offices, he said, being formed for the altar's services. Lay the cup aside, sternly and severely interrupted Bonifacius. It cometh of Limburg. Emic colored, more in anger than in shame, however, for in that age plunder was one of the speediest and most used means of acquiring wealth. He eyed the merciless abbot fiercely, but without speaking. I have no more, he said. The wars, the charges of my house, and gold given the rooted brother have left me poor. The treasurer turned to Heinrich with an eloquent expression of countenance. Thou wilt remember, Master Treasurer, that there is no longer any question of a powerful baron, said the burgomaster, but that the little I have to give cometh of a poor and saddled town. First we offer our wishes and our prayers. Secondly, we present in all humility, and with the wish they may prove acceptable, these spoons, which may be of use in some of thy many ceremonies. Thirdly, this candlestick, which though small is warranted to be of pure gold by jewelers of Frankfurt. And lastly, this cord with which seven of our chief men have grievously and loyally scourged themselves in reparation of the wrong done thy brethren. All these offerings were graciously received, and the monk turned to the others. It is unnecessary to repeat the different donations that were made by the inferiors who came from the castle and the town. That of Gottlob was, or pretended to be, the offending horn, which had so irreverently been sounded near the altar of Limburg, and a piece of gold. The latter was the identical coin he had obtained from Bonifacius in the interview which led to his arrest and the other was a cracked instrument that the roguish cowherd had often essayed among his native hills without the least success. In afterlife, when the spirit of religious party grew bolder, he often boasted of the manner in which he had tricked the Benedictines by bestowing an instrument so useless. Ulrich made her offering with sincere and meek penitence. It consisted of a garment for the image of the Virgin, which had been chiefly wrought by her own fair hands, and on which the united tributes of her townswomen had been expended, in the way of ornaments and in stones of inferior price. The gift was graciously received, for the community had been well instructed in the different characters of the various penitents. "'Hast thou aught in honor of Maria?' demanded the treasurer of Lockton. The widowed and childless woman endeavored to speak, but her power failed her. She laid upon the table, however, a neatly bound and illuminated missal, a cap that seemed to have no particular value except its tassel of gold and green, and a hunting horn, all of which, with many others of the articles named, had made part of the load borne on the furniture of the ass. These are unusual gifts at our shrine, muttered the monk. Reverend Benedictine, interrupted Ulrich, nearly breathless in the generous desire to avert pain from her friend. They are extorted from her who gives like drops of blood from the heart. This is Lockjen Hintermeyer, of whom thou hast doubtless heard. The name of Lockjen Hintermeyer had never reached the treasurer's ear, but the sweet and persuasive manner of Ulrich prevailed. The monk bowed, and he seemed satisfied. The next that advanced was Meta. The Benedictines all appeared struck by the pallid color of her cheek and the vacant, hopeless expression of an eye that had lately been so joyous. The journey hath been hard upon our daughter, said the princely abbot with gentleness and concern. She is young, reverend father, answered Ulrich, but God will temper the wind to the shorn lamb. The abbot looked surprised, for the tones of the mother met his ear with an appeal as touching as that of the worn countenance of the girl. Is she thy child, good pilgrim? Father, she is. Heaven make me grateful for its blessed gift. Another gaze from the wondering priest, and he gave place to the treasurer who advanced to receive the offering. The frame of Meta trembled violently, and she placed a hand to her bosom. Drawing forth a paper, she laid it simply before the monk who gazed at it in wonder. What is this? he asked. It is the image of a youth rudely sketched. It meaneth, father. 
half-whispered Ulrich, that the heart which loved him now belongs to God. The abbot bowed, hastily signing to the inferior to accept the offering, and he walked aside to conceal a tear that started to his eye. Meta at that moment fell upon her mother's breast and was borne silent from the sacristy. The men followed, and with single exception, the two abbots and the treasurer were now left alone. Hast thou an offering, good woman? demanded the latter of the female who remained. Have I an offering, father? Dost think I would come thus far with an empty hand? I am Ilse, Frau Frey's nurse, that Durkheim hath sent on this pilgrimage as an offering in herself, and such it truly is for frail bones and threescore and past. We are but poor townspeople of the Palatinant, but then we know what is available at need. There are many reasons why I should come, as thou shalt hear. Firstly, I was in Limburg Church when the deed was, How did one of thy years go forth on such an expedition? Ay, and on many other expeditions. Firstly, I was with the old burgomaster, Frau Ulrich's father, when there was a succor sent to Mannheim. Secondly, I beheld from our hills the onset between the elector's men and the followers of, Dost thou serve the mother of yonder weeping girl? demanded the abbot, cutting short the history of Ilse's campaigns. And the weeping girl herself, reverend and holy and princely abbot, and, if thou wilt, the burgomaster too, for at times, in sooth, I serve the whole family. Canst thou repeat the history of her sorrow? Not easier, my lord and abbot. Firstly, as she is youthful, and that is an age when we grieve or are gladdened with little reason, then she is an only child, which is apt to weaken the spirit by indulgence. Next, she is fair, which often tempts the heart with various vanities, and doubtless into sorrow among the others. Then is she footsore, a bitter grief of itself. And finally, she hath much repentance for this nefarious sin, of which we are not yet purged, and which, unless pardoned, may descend to her, among other bequests from her father. It is well. Deposit thy gift, and kneel, and I may bless thee. Ilstead is ordered, after which she withdrew, making many reverences in the act. As the door closed on the crone, Bonifacius and his brother Abbot quitted the place in company, leaving the monk charged with that duty to care for the wealth that had been so liberally added to the treasury of Isenden. End of Volume 2, Chapter 12 Read by Joel Kendrick